Good evening. Uh, welcome to uh, the Princeton Public Lectures this evening. Thank you all for braving the um, uh, rather abrupt, uh, cold and rainy October uh, weather. Um, tonight's lecture is uh, the first of three Stafford Little, uh, Stafford Little lectures by Professor Mark Knoll at the University of the University of Notre Dame. Um, as I say, it's the first of three lectures. Uh, the second and third lectures will be held tomorrow night and Thursday night, uh, same time, same place, same station. Um, I will now introduce um, Professor Robert Wuthnow, who will introduce Professor Knoll. Professor Robert Wuthnow is uh, a sociologist uh, in the sociology department here at Princeton University. Uh, a leading scholar in the field of the sociology of religion and um, a, a Princeton University Press author many times over as uh, director of Princeton University Press and one of Bob's uh, many editors at the press. It's a pleasure for me to uh, welcome Bob Wethno up to the stage. Well, it's always a special pleasure to introduce someone who is a distinguished scholar, and it's even more special when that someone is also a friend. And Mark Knoll is both. I no longer recall exactly when we met the first time, uh, Mark, but I suspect it might have been uh, one summer, at least 20 years ago, maybe longer, at a gathering uh, at Craigsville uh, on Cape Cod. Uh, when we spent a weekend uh, together. And at that point, I was already familiar with some of Professor Knoll's writing, uh, both his uh, solo writing and work that he had been uh, doing with two other distinguished historians, George Marsden uh, and Nathan Hatch. And over the years, I've benefited greatly from his writing, so I'm especially pleased to introduce him this evening. For many years, Professor Knoll was the McManus Professor of Christian Thought at Wheaton College, uh, where he was also one of the founders and a senior advisor to the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals. He's also been a visiting professor at a number of places, including Harvard Divinity School, and he was the McGuire Professor of American History and Ethics at the Library of Congress, John W. Klug Center. After numerous colleges and universities had sought to lure him away from Wheaton, he finally yielded and is now the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History uh, at Notre Dame, uh, and soon will be starting to teach there uh, in January. Professor Knoll's accomplishments are so numerous and wide-ranging that it is indeed a daunting task even to try to summarize them. But let me try by mentioning a few of his accomplishments in three rather different areas. First, as an entrepreneur, Professor Knoll not only founded the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicals, but also kept it flourishing over the years by raising foundation funding for it, organizing numerous conferences, publishing edited volumes, initiating a newsletter that is a valuable bibliographic and informational source, and hiring a talented staff. He has been tireless in helping advise and organize other efforts in the field of Christian studies as well. For instance, serving often on boards and committees for programs 
funded by the, by the Pew Charitable Trust and the Lilly Endowment. And he played a key role in organizing and securing funding for the highly successful journal Books and Culture, which has recently celebrated its 10th anniversary and is living up to its aim of serving for the world of scholarship about religion a similar role to that of the New York Review of Books. Second, Professor Knoll has been a prodigious writer of distinguished scholarly books and articles. I hesitate to say exactly how many books or articles because there are ones coming out all the time. But dozens of books and dozens of edited books would not be an exaggeration. And several books have particular resonance for those of us here at Princeton. For instance, Princeton and the Republic, 1768 to 1822, the search for a Christian enlightenment in the era of Stan Samuel Stanhope Smith, is especially worth your time if you are interested in Princeton's place during the American Revolution, or even if you are eager to learn more about the student riots that took place in and around Nassau Hall in those early days. And for those of you who may be here from Princeton Seminary, Professor Knoll's biography of Charles Hodge is especially recommended. A few of the most recent titles will give you a sense of the breadth of Professor Knoll's interest and erudition. The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, published in 2006. Is the Reformation Over? An Evangelical Assessment of Contemporary Roman Catholicism, published in 2005 and Your Mind Matters, The Place of the Mind in the Christian Life, co-authored with John R. W. Stott and just published. My favorite of his recent books is America's God, From Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, a truly masterful combination of social and intellectual history that, to my mind, better explains the rise of common sense moral reasoning, its meaning and social implications, and its decline than any other book. Finally, Professor Knoll has also earned well-deserved distinction as a public intellectual. Besides writing a book or two a year, he finds time to contribute regularly to books and culture and to Christianity Today, to appear on Religion and Ethics Newsweekly on PBS, and to lecture and teach about topics of timely importance. For instance, his book on the scandal of the evangelical mind became a wake-up call to many scholars on church-related campuses and has generated continuing discussion in the pages of such journals as the Atlantic Monthly and First Things and elsewhere. He has often been a voice for progressive evangelical Protestantism and a critic of the religious right. In 2005, Time magazine named him one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals, an honor that was well-deserved by someone who had never been part of the religious right and never occupied the pulpit of a megachurch, but who has consistently elevated the level of discourse and understanding about evangelicalism, about American history, and about the times in which we live. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Knoll. The introduction was uh, way too kind on a warm, cheerful Princeton evening. 
Unfortunately, the evening fits better to the subject of my lectures than the introduction. The lectures are seeking to address the impossible topic of race, religion, and American politics from Nat Turner to George W. Bush. And tonight's lecture is entitled The Bible, Slavery, and the Irrepressible Conflict. There are, alas, any number of incidents, statements, or situations that could be enlisted to begin this lecture series on race, religion, and American politics. Although, alas, is far too simple a parenthetical interjection for the complexities involved in this topic from the time of Nat Turner to the time of George W. Bush. To treat such a broad set of themes in such a short compass means that I will be presenting something more like a cartoon than real history, but even cartoons can provide a few moments of sharp focus. One such moment was July 1863, the climactic month of the Civil War, which was the most decisive event in United States history. Earlier in July, Gettysburg and Pittsburgh turned the military tide in favor of the North. A week later, federal officials in New York City began to carry out the draft that had been authorized by Congress. On Saturday, July 18th, Sergeant Robert Simmons, an African-American from New York City who had enlisted in the 54th Massachusetts Regiment of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, was killed during the Union assault on Fort Wagner, South Carolina. His death occurred only days after anti-draft rioters in New York City, hell-bent on attacking the city's Negro population, had destroyed Simmons' family home and lynched his nephew. The day before Simmons' death, Maria Daly, a white diarist, had expressed fears that the New York mob would attack the block in which her home was located, since it was situated near tenements below McDougal Street, where a band of African Americans had taken refuge on a rooftop. On that rooftop, these African Americans were collecting firearms and singing the psalms. Only a few years later, a conservative Catholic periodical in Munich published a long article by Father Paul Josef Muntz on the subject Christendom and Slavery, which included full discussion of events in the United States. This journal, the historic and political newspaper for Catholic Germany, had written much about the war between the states, mostly to blast the North for its hypocrisy in condemning slavery while benefiting economically from its existence, and to attack Protestants for their inability to agree on the interpretation of Scripture. Muntz closed his report with a chilling prophecy. The North can free the slaves with force, but it cannot civilize them and deliver them com contempt and mistreatment. Here, no one can help except the Church, whose main task is precisely this concern. In 1868, when this article was written, what would prove to be the long history of American contempt and mistreatment of former slaves was barely underway. In fact, it continued, it did continue, until the church did do something about it, although it would not be the Roman Catholic Church that led the way. In November 1900, the nation returned President William McKinley to office for a second term in a comfortable Republican victory over his Democratic rival William Jennings Bryan. 
During the campaign, Bryan had distributed a pamphlet by the Negro National Democratic League that attacked U.S. oppression of the Filipino people in the name of those who knew firsthand what it meant to suffer from official American subjugation. Bryan's support for black causes could not be too aggressive, however, since he needed the electoral votes of the Democratic Solid South, where the process of black disenfranchisement begun shortly after the war was now nearly complete. In that presidential election, voter turnout as a percentage of a state's population ranged as high as 41% in Colorado. This is before the amendment that gives women the right to vote. With the ratio in most northern and western states averaging from 20% to 35%. But in the states of the former Confederacy, with their large black populations, it was another story. African Americans were almost entirely excluded from the polls, and whites had little incentive to vote where the outcome was foreordained in favor of the Democratic candidate. Thus, the turnout in these states was abysmally low, 10% or less of the state population in several, 5% or less in Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. In the immediate wake of this election, the Reverend Francis Grimke presented a notable series of lectures to the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Grimke was a former slave who, after education at Lincoln University, Howard University, and the Princeton Theological Seminary, had entered into a long pastorate in this Washington Presbyterian Church. On November 20th, 1900, he lectured on the subject, Discouragements, Hostility of the Press, Silence, and Cowardice of the Pulpit. The address singled out the South for special rebuke, but also spoke implicitly of the whole nation. Lawlessness is increasing in the South. After 33 years of freedom, our civil and political rights are still denied us. The 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution are still a dead letter. The determination to keep us in a state of civil and political inferiority and to surround us with such conditions as will tend to crush out of us a manly and self-respecting spirit is stronger now than it was at the close of the war. The fixed purpose and determination of the Southern whites is to negative these great amendments to eliminate entirely the Negro as a political factor. If he dares to think otherwise or aspires to cast a ballot or to become anything more than a servant, he is regarded as an impudent and dangerous Negro. And according to the most recent declaration of that old slaveholding and lawless spirit, all such Negroes are to be driven out of the South or compelled by force by what is known as the shotgun policy to renounce their rights as men and as American citizens. A week later, Grimke continued his series by lecturing on the general government and political parties as sources from which may be expected no help. Here, the national focus of his indictment was explicit. The white people in the South and the white people in the North who sympathize with the Southern estimate of the Negro had just as well understand once and for all that the Negro is a man and an American citizen and that he will never be satisfied until he is treated as a man and as a full-fledged citizen. A century later, African Americans had finally won their own enfranchisement and were taking part in national elections. But radically, but, sorry, but racially defined politics remained almost as strong as in the age of Sergeant Simmons or Reverend Grimke. In the year 2000, white evangelical Protestants supported George Bush over Al Gore by 68% to 30%. In 2004, the white evangelical vote went to Bush over John Kerry by 78% to 21%. In 2000, 
Al Gore won 91% of the black Protestant vote. In 2004, John Kerry captured 86% of the black Protestant vote. Early in 2004, polling by Stanley Greenberg divided the core constituencies of the Republican and Democratic parties by variables featuring race, religion, wealth, region, gender, and age of all groups, of all groups, differentiated by these variables. The largest advantage in party identification was found among blacks who favored the Democrats by 78 percentage points. The next largest was among white evangelicals and fundamentalist Protestants who favored the Republicans by 49 percentage points. And, of course, it is pertinent to remember what a wealth of polling data has documented that on religious questions of belief and practice, the two groups in the United States that are closest to each other are black Protestants and white evangelicals. These snapshots from 1863, 1868, 1900, and the early 21st century outline the terrain I hope to cover in advancing the, fo the following two-part thesis. First, Race has always been among the most influential elements in American political history and in many periods absolutely the most influential. Second, religion has always been crucial in shaping the influence of race on American politics. Together, race and religion make up not only the nation's deepest and most enduring moral problem, but also its broadest and most enduring political influence. For three out of the four great transformations in American political history, potent combinations of race and religion were at the center of what went on. These transformative periods were the antebellum years from 1830 to 1860, when slavery came to overwhelm all other issues in the political landscape, the postbellum years from 1865 to roughly 1900, when the nation gave up on the project of equal rights for all while African Americans were left to fend for themselves, and the recent past from the 1950s into the early 21st century, when the battle for civil rights was finally won, but with unanticipated spin-off effects and ironic consequences. The one exception to the rule that race in league with religion has dominated the history of American politics was the 1930s, when economic pressures arising from the Great Depression transformed American politics in ways only marginally affected by race and religion. These lectures offer an interpretation of the three transformations in which I try to show how the concerns of race combined with interests of religion to dominate the course of American politics. They also try to show that although race and religion combine differently in each of the three transformations, the successive combinations in fact outline a continuous narrative from the slave revolts of Nat Turner in 1830 to the re-election of George W. Bush in 2004. Defining the political transformations and trying to explain how race and religion dictated the shape of their development is the major business of my lectures. But because the relationship among race and religion and politics has been so intimate in American history, I pause at the end, if anyone is still around for Thursday at about 8.50 to attempt a broader interpretation for which I draw on Calvinist theology, a strand of moral reasoning that has been well represented in both black and white American churches and in secularized forms more broadly in the society. And I do this knowing full well that uh, what I will present as a response to the great racial, religious, political entanglements of American history has been itself 
one of the chief contributors to those entanglements. Tonight's lecture mostly concerns the period from 1830 through the time of the Civil War, though it makes preliminary statements concerning the whole of American history. It sets out five interlocking conclusions or theses about antebellum American culture that highlight the intertwining of political and religious history with the history of slavery and race. And those are the five points that are on your handout. First, the baptism of racially based, sorry, yes, the baptism of racially based political issues with religious sanctions, which occurred with increasing force from about 1830 onwards, stratified American political allegiance in ways that remain important to this day. The great importance of the race-religion connection can be suggested by attending to two matters, electoral results and the broader American debate over whether and how to use national power for the purpose of shaping national, social, and cultural norms. It's of course true that other factors, and especially wealth and warfare, other factors have also influenced elections and shaped the use of national power, but I think a case can be made that race in connection with religion has always been nearly or, or even the most important. The graph of presidential results that's on the back of your handout provides a bird's eye view of the long-term picture for electoral results. Uh, the, 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 the graph is of a state's democratic popular vote over the national popular vote. So you can see some years that Massachusetts is, is really Republican because its Democratic vote is only 40 or 50 percent of the national Democratic vote. And in many years, South Carolina, Alabama, and Florida are much more Democratic than the nation as a whole. The graph shows a tangle of regional political allegiances for the period 1836 to 1864, followed by a long period of regional differentiation from 1876 through 1948, followed by another period of tangled regional allegiance from 1952 to 1984, followed by another period of regional differentiation from 1988 through the present, though in this last period the differentiation is not so strong as it was earlier. Both the tangles and the periods of clear differentiation reflect histories fundamentally keyed to religion and race. From 1836 to 1852, Jacksonian Democrats and the opponents of Jackson, who eventually formed the Whig Party, remained more or less competitive in all regions of the country. After the political effects of slave controversy is backed by religion had hardened, it was another story. Regions of the country became much more firmly marked in their electoral allegiance. Although this marking can be accounted for by a wide range of factors, besides race and religion, race and religion were of greatest importance. You can compare um, the states that made up the, the former Confederacy with the states of New England and of the eastern Midwest, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. New England and the uh, states of the eastern Midwest Few, a few of which you can find on the graph, are overwhelmingly Republican into the mid-20th century and then after a period of competitiveness have become strongly Democratic. In the 11 states of the former Confederacy, the strength of the earlier partisan allegiance to the Democratic Party is even stronger. 
for, for the presidential elections from 1880 to 1916, there are 110 state races for presidential electors. The Democrats win 110 out of those 110. Between 1920 and 1948, and I'm going to count the states' rights uh, victories of Strom Thurmond in 1948 is Democratic. From 1920 to 1948, there are six times only when Democratic states vote for the Republican for president. Five of those are in 1928, when heavily evangelical states, Florida, Alabama, South Carolina, Mississippi, and one more, voted for Herbert Hoover against the Catholic Al Smith. Then for those states, after a period of relative competitiveness lasting only a few elections in the last uh, period since 1980, uh, over almost 90 percent of those state elections have gone for the Republican candidate. Um, now the importance of this, these regional hegemonies is noted by the fact that since the 1830s, the electoral votes of the 11 former Confederate states have represented about one-fourth of the national total. Moreover, it's pertinent to note that in those states, most African Americans were excluded from the polls until the 1960s, and the white evangelical population was strong, much stronger than in the rest of the country. Given elect electoral realities as represented by these strong political bifurcations, it means that the ideologies which drove politics, particularly in functionally one-party regions of the country, and particularly in the Solid South, must be considered influential for the nation's political history as a whole. And if those ideologies were strongly shaped by ideas about race that were supported by religious convictions, then race and religion must be considered long-term determinative influences on national politics. The political influence of race and religion went, however, deeper than just the result of elections. Political fixations dominated by race were obviously central to elections in former slave states. If they were less obviously central in the non-slave states, it was due at least in part to the fact that Northerners were reluctant to acknowledge how deeply they had been involved in the system of slavery and how widely they shared in dismissive attitudes toward African Americans. The broader implicit issue that has always been connected in American history with explicit matters of race and religion is the question of federal power. In intense differences of opinion about this issue were critical during the Confederation and Constitutional years, and they have been critical ever since. Actual implementation of convictions about ideals for central government, of course, whether central government is an evil to be avoided or a good to be used uh, discerningly. Uh, actions have always been more complicated than ideologies, but nonetheless, a clear conceptual divide is present from the start. On the one side, has been found a classically Republican ideology that led on to the views of Thomas Jefferson about the intuitive merits of independent yeoman farmers, and then to the convictions of Andrew Jackson about the common man. This ideology dominated the Democratic Party until the early 20th century. It was a central conviction of the Dixie Democrats into the 1960s, and it has been prominent in the Republican Party since the 1870s. From this perspective, big government was bad government. And in this perspective, individuals, families, and self-selected interest groups flourished best when national government protected them from outside forces, not least the force of national government. 
The opposite opinion was represented by what can be called a liberal Republican ideology that led on to Alexander Hamilton's vision of an economically empowering central government and then to the Whig Party's addition of a moral note to the Federalist confidence in using central government authority. This ideology strongly shaped the Whigs and then the Republicans, at least through the climactic election of 1876. Over the course of the 20th century, it has been strong among progressive Democrats and Republicans, then New Deal Democrats, and since World War II, widely prevalent among Democrats, but also some, on some issues, Republicans as well. From this perspective, somewhat bigger government could be better government, and individuals, families, and self-selected interest groups flourished best when national government aided them in dealing with the broader world. Ideological differences, of course, were always complicated by practice, yet the key matter is that virtually all debates in American political history from the 1770s to early in the 20th century about the exercise of national power, and many of the debates since, have been arguments in which either slavery or race was central. In the angry response of the American patriots to Governor Dunmore's executive order in 1775 that offered freedom to Virginia slaves who came over to the British through debates over the three-fifths clause in the Constitution, over the admission of new states, over the Civil War, over Reconstruction, over populist and progressive reforms, to debates over civil rights after World War II and over the size of federal budgets in the Bush, Clinton, and Bush administrations, American controversy over the exercise of central government authority has almost always been either dominated by race or in some meaningful way affected by race. David Bryan Davis once wrote about South Carolina's effort to nullify the tariff approved by President Jackson in 1832 in phrases that could be applied in other ways to other times and places in American history. He wrote, by forcing a redefinition of state sovereignty and of the limits of national power, South Carolina found the tariff issue an ideal testing ground for the defense of slavery without risking the explosive effects of debating the morality of slaveholding. The fiction has been easy to sustain that slavery and civil rights were regional questions, important mostly or even only for the South. Refocusing historical analysis on controversies about questions of central government authority make it easier to grasp the national influence of race on American political history. Some, the bearing of race on American politics is visible both directly in electoral history and indirectly for issues concerning the exercise of central government authority. For both matters, to think of American politics and not also to think about race is to miss the heart of the matter. The rest of this series will take the race-political connection as a given. The main burden of the lectures will be to indicate how religion has influenced race in shaping American politics. Now, the second point I'd like to make is that the, uh, the kind of religion that has had the most dramatic and central effect in American public life for whites and blacks alike, for people who are religious and people who aren't religious, the kind of, of uh, stance in public life has been, has been what is, can be called a broadly Calvinistic faith. The point I'm trying to make was made by a French visitor in the 1920s, André Siegfried, who came to the U.S. about 90 years after Alexis de Tocqueville was here and said things that were almost as insightful as uh, de Tocqueville. Like uh, de Tocqueville, Siegfried said, uh, observed, 
that unlike Europe, American churches institutionally have very little to do with politics. But also like de Tocqueville, Siegfried said, American churches and American religion everywhere influences the ethos of American politics, again, unlike Europe. Siegfried saw this kind of of religious influence in America as broadly Calvinistic. He didn't mean the narrow teachings of John Calvin, but he meant the Puritans, the Evangelicals, the Methodists, the broadly reformist religious movements that had been so important in American life. So defined, he held, in his words, that the Calvinist felt himself burdened with a mission to carry out, namely to purify the life of the community and to uplift the state. So Siegfried was here in the teens, or in the 20s, and, and was thinking mostly about activities in the teens and the 20s, and he wrote, every, every, every American is at heart an evangelist, be he a Woodrow Wilson, a William Jennings Bryan, or a John D. Rockefeller. He cannot leave people alone, and he constantly feels the urge to preach. This political style has been often expressed in American history through employment of the Bible for the purpose of public moral persuasion. This signal instance is most important, which we'll get to in a little bit more detail later, was the pro-slavery use of the Bible and the anti-slavery use of the Bible that led up to the Civil War. But use of a scriptural word has functioned large in many incidents of American public life, the temperance movement, uh, different uh, times of warfare, civil rights movement. And in these and other cases, what I'm calling the broadly Calvinistic approach to uh, American public life has been uh, the confidence that a person could, and a group could understand a word from God and then immediately carry that word forthright into the public domain. Uh, we, we have moved in American history where the, the, the dramatic confrontations over moral values once were Bible versus Bible to now Bible, and I don't think you should use the Bible, always stronger than language, I don't think. But, but nonetheless, those confrontations have been carried out in what I'd like to call this Calvinist style. Point three. The political history of the United States from early on, but more aggressively from 1830, was driven by debates over slavery, which were religious from the first, but became more intensely so as the sectional crisis moved toward war. Uh, Some historians point to 1820 and the Missouri Compromise, especially the Missouri Compromise followed very soon thereafter by the uh, slave rebellion or the putative slave rebellion of Denmark Vesey in in, uh, uh, South Carolina as a turning point that that began to ratchet up slavery as the center of American ideology. That could be, I'd like to point rather to 1830 as the time when concerns about slavery that had been present since the nation's founding came now into the center of public debate. Listen to these conjunction of events. 1829 is when the free black David Walker published the era's most incendiary attack on on slavery by an African-American and maybe the most incendiary attack by anyone. Uncompromising application of the Christian scriptures was a major feature of Walker's dramatic tract entitled Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. He said in part, Can the American preacher appeal unto God, the maker and searcher of hearts, and tell him with the Bible in his hands 
that they make no distinction on account of man's color? If Walker's message was shrugged off in Boston, where it was published, it was not so easy to shrug aside two years later the rebellion led by Nat Turner in Southampton County, Virginia. Turner's evocation of scriptural themes of apocalypse did not strike many whites as a legitimate ground for rebellion, but the depth of Turner's apocalypticism did show how thoroughly at least some part of the nation's slave population had internalized at least some Christian elements in their own understanding of human bondage. In response to Nat Turner's rebellion, legislative initiatives cracked down on slaves in many southern states and also in many northern states restricted rights of free blacks. In response to those actions, as well as in keeping with heightened consciousness about the moral dilemmas of slavery that were fueled by the steady march toward emancipation in the United Kingdom, American reformers also took steps to contest what they called sin, or a malum in se, an evil in itself. The year 1831 witnessed the first issue of William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, which proclaimed anti-slavery a higher law than even the scriptures. But it was also the year of Charles G. Finney's revivalistic conquest of Rochester, New York, and the emergence of Finney as the nation's most uh, well-known evangelical Christian at a time when evangelical Christianity dominated the religion of the nation. Only four years later, Finney published in New York City a widely uh, read series of lectures, Revivals of Religion, which he agreed to publish in order to rescue his publisher, who was suffering financial embarrassments for his backing of abolition. In these lectures, Finney left no doubt about his opinions. He wrote, slavery is preeminently the sin of the church. Let Christians of all denominations meekly but firmly come forth and pronounce their verdict. Let them clear their communions and wash their hands of this thing. Let them give forth and write on the head and front of his great abomination sin. And in three years, a public sentiment would be formed that would carry all before it. And there would not be a shackled slave nor a bristling, cruel slave driver in this land. 1835. Predictably, such charges outraged slaveholders. They also produced detailed arguments from Scripture to, to defend slavery as a divinely sanctioned institution. Biblical defenses of slavery were no new thing, but the use of Scripture to defend the American system of slavery only became influential when abolitionists, after the time of the Nat Turner Rebellion, began to mine the Bible for ammunition against slavery. As I've tried to show elsewhere, abolitionists who turned to scripture for the attack on slavery were chagrined to find that the defenders of slavery were able to quote many more texts that simply took slavery for granted or even regulated its operation than there were texts which, even by implication, questioned the propriety of slavery. Thus, in 1837, Finney's acolyte, Theodore Dwight Weld, published a book entitled The Bible Against Slavery in his chaps, his side, applauded Weld's passionate efforts to force the Semitics of Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament into an anti-slave pamphlet. But pro-slavery advocates like Thornton Stringfellow of Virginia positively chuckled and rubbed their hands in glee, because as he demonstrated in 1841 with a brief examination of scripture testimony in the institution of slavery, it was relatively easy to show that Abraham, Moses, the Apostle Paul, and even Jesus himself 
either simply took the existence of slavery for granted or made no obvious moves to eliminate it. Positioned in the middle between extremists like Weld and Stringfellow were many Bible-believing moderates who very much wanted to reject slavery, but also realized how foundational reliance on the Bible had been for all of Protestant history, and especially for creating the thriving ethos of the United States. They found themselves in a dilemma. They wanted to go with Finney and Weld to attack slavery, but they were nervous about how abolitionists were putting the Bible to use for that attack. Leonard Bacon, serious-minded Congregationalist from Connecticut or Massachusetts, was both strongly anti-slave and strongly biblical. And he analyzed the arguments that were being presented in the 1830s and concluded with these words. The evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves in the churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of, and then he underlined this phrase, without resorting to methods of interpretation which will get rid of everything. To Bacon, well-intentioned abolitionists who, in his words, torture the scriptures into saying that which the anti-slavery theory requires them to say did more harm to trust in the Bible than, in his words, the violence put upon the sacred records by high churchmen or by universalists. And those were fighting words in the 1840s. The question of whether the Bible approved slavery may have been as intensely debated from the 1830s until the spring of 1861 than the political debates in the United States over slavery. And for political history, there were several important results arising from these debates. First, the debates were dividing the nation's evangelical churches against themselves during the period in the nation's history when the evangelical churches enjoyed an influence over public life greater than any other religious tradition has ever enjoyed at any time. Beginning in the 1790s, mobilization by Methodists and Baptists but also Presbyterians, disciples, Congregationalists, a host of sectarian groups, and even Episcopalians, had created the, the America that Alexis de Tocqueville discovered in the 1830s, where the churches don't have anything specific to do with po politics, but where a religious spirit dominates political life. From the 1830s onward, however, the culture that had been built by lay religious agency was being torn apart by the antithetical conclusions reached by lay interpreters of the Bible. Second, institutionally, what happened to the large national churches in the most widely spread voluntary societies exerted an unusual impact on the nation. John C. Calhoun uh, addressed the Senate of the United States in his last address in March 1850. It was an address he'd written and then was read for him because he was ill. In this address, he spent a great deal of time talking about the national religious denominations, which he mostly meant Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists, which were far and away the largest religious groups in the country. He called these religious denominations uh, powerful cords of a spiritual and ecclesiastical nature. And he said that the nation itself was held together by these cords that had joined Methodists to Methodists, Baptists to Baptists, and Presbyterians to Presbyterians. Then he went on to make a prediction that became justly famous. He, he said, when all such bonds have snapped, nothing will be left to hold the states together except force. And he knew what he was talking about 
because the preceding years had been uh, bad years for uh, Christian ecumenicity. And in order to show why they were such bad years for Christian ecumenicity and why those bad years were so important for the political history of the country, consider just some comparative statistics. Liars, damn liars, and statisticians, I know, but just, just bear with me. In 1845, there are more Methodist ministers in the United States than workers for the United States Post Office. Had it not been for the Mexican War and the buildup of the troops, there would have been more Methodist and Baptist ministers than members of the U.S. Armed Service. In 1845, the average American heard more sermons from a Methodist minister than received pieces of mail. Even in the email age where you get all your spam electronically, we still get a tremendous amount of, you know, more than we're hearing Methodist sermons, let's say, every day. In 1845, statistically average American heard more sermons each year from a Methodist preacher than received pieces of mail. And, of course, what Calhoun was reflecting on in 1850 is in 1837, the Presbyterians had divided between the old school party and the new school party, not over slavery directly, but in large part over how active issues like, how, how, what kind of place issues like slavery should hold in the church. And in 1844 and 1845, the Methodists divided over whether a bishop who owned slaves, whether a bishop could be, a person could be a bishop and owned slaves, and the Baptists divided over whether a missionary could own slaves. So in the space of seven or eight years, not just three large national denominations, religious denominations, but probably the three most widely spread institutions of any kind in the United States in this age before railroads and the expansion of the federal government, the three most powerful institutions of any kind in the United States were divided by slavery. Four in your outline. Antebellum religious controversy over slavery overwhelmed and confused religious considerations of race. African Americans interpreted the events of the Civil War as a statement not primarily about their conditions of servitude, but more distinctly as a statement about themselves. So in April 1862, Bishop Daniel Alexander Payne preached to his Methodist congregation in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the newly enacted federal ban on slavery in the district. He said, who has sent this great deliverance? The answer shall be the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Only thou, O Lord, and thou alone couldst have moved the heart of this nation to have done so great a deed for this weak, despised, and needy people. By contrast, most American whites were not quite so sure what the ending of slavery meant for the black people. If emancipation could be depicted as a blow for freedom in the abstract, its meaning for African Americans remained uncertain. The disjunction between consideration of slavery and consideration of black people was a fixture in the nation's charged ideological history before, during, and after the war between the states. Yet it was a dif disjunction difficult to recognize at the time. Only rarely did commentators stop to consider what perhaps should have been obvious and what now has been emphasized with unusual force in the work of Eugene Genovese and Elizabeth Fox Genovese. They have to listen carefully to what I'm saying now because it, it's, it's 
so counterintuitive to the whole narrative of American history that it takes, took in my case about 10 years to figure out what they were trying to say. But here it is. If, if race could have been taken out of the picture, some aspects of slavery may have offered a corrective to some aspects of America's economic acquisitiveness and social individualism. Another possibility, which is much more congenial to modern observers, uh, but was in the 19th century just as hard to imagine, was that once the bonds of slavery were removed, the formerly enslaved could simply get on with life on the same footing as other citizens, which in fact had happened, sometimes at least in the ancient world. But neither of these logical possibilities, that American free market capitalists could learn some positive lessons about community solidarity from some aspects of the institution of slavery, or that American freed slaves could simply become American citizens, had much of a chance in the 19th century United States. On the eve of the conflict in 1861, the reason was spelled out clearly by the emigre historian and theologian Philip Schaff, who wrote, the Negro question lies far deeper than the slave question. The Negro question lies far deeper than the slave question because solutions to economic and political problems of slavery differed from solutions to the social problems of race. Repeated efforts by both whites and blacks to differentiate issues of slavery from issues of race exercised almost no influence. There were some people that tried. There was a feisty young dissenting Protestant mission, uh, minister in Kentucky by the name of John G. Fee who during the debates, acrimonious debates in Kentucky in 1850 over the new state constitution, responded to the people who were using the Bible to defend slavery. John Fee was exasperated. He wrote, what? He said, he turned to the New Testament, and he said, yes, of course, the Romans enslaved Teutons, Gauls, Greeks, and Egyptians. What, he said, was the complexion of these nations? And then in big, big, bold print, he said, the Bible sanctioned the slavery of the age. Nota bene, this slavery was white slavery. The large portion of those enslaved were as white, and many of them whiter than their masters. Some of this got out to the general public. Cincinnati, 1859, Abraham Lincoln was making a stump speech, and he paused to do what almost never anybody is doing now in October of 2006. He paused actually to give a little compliment to his opponent, Senator Douglas. He said, Senator Douglas is smart, in not using these arguments that many of his Democratic supporters do to show that the Bible defends slavery, because Senator Douglas knows, and I'll quote now, whenever you establish that slavery was right by the Bible, it will occur that slavery was the slavery of the white man, of men without reference to color. Not surprisingly, African Americans drove home this point most dramatically. Here's Frederick Douglass in March of 1861. Nobody at the North, we think, would defend slavery, even from the Bible, but for this color distinction. Color makes all the difference in the application of our American Christianity. The same liberty, which is full of the gospel of liberty, the same book, which is full of the gospel of liberty to one race, is crowded with arguments and justification of the slavery of another. In fact, however, it proved quite easy, both North and South, to defend slavery from the Bible because it was so widely assumed that if Scripture did not condemn the institution as such, it thereby sanctioned the form of black-only slavery that prevailed in the United States. Countless works, again, almost as frequent in the North as in the South, 
casually transpose the terms slaves and Africans as if they were simply equivalent. If this was an entirely illogical move, it nonetheless arose from centuries of race prejudice that had made it seem intuitively certain for Caucasians of white European heritage, both that slavery was limited to blacks and that all people of African descent were naturally prepared for slavery. Of course, a few Southerners did carry the logic to its conclusion and say, well, if slavery is a good system, it's a good system for all, white, black, anything. But of course, they had as little traction um, as those who pointed out that the slavery of the Bible was mostly slavery of Caucasians. The result of this situation, where slavery had become the crux of national political development, where statements about slavery were confused with statements about the nature of African Americans, and where arguments about slavery had become irrevocably religious, was fraught with significance for the future. In the judgment of Frederick Douglass again, which he rendered while the outcome of the war was still in doubt, the law and the sword cannot abolish the malignant slaveholding sentiment which has kept the slave system alive in the country during uh, two centuries. Pride of race, prejudice against color, will raise their hateful clamor for oppression of the Negro as heretofore. The slave having ceased to be the abject slave of a single master, his enemies will endeavor to make him the slave of society at large. Now for the fifth point. The Civil War is a conflict to define the Union, determine the legitimacy of slavery, and specify the limit of states' rights, was also fundamentally a religious war fought over how to interpret the Bible and how to promote moral norms in public life. The last conclusion does not require, uh, this last statement does not require extensive elaboration since it was so widely and regularly repeated during the conflict itself. I've got some lengthy quotations here from North and South uh, showing uh, how intensely the argument was made that, the, that, that since the Lord is fighting for us, we will prevail. The, great, the longest one, which I won't read, is from March 15, 1865, to a paper sent out to the Confederates, so less than a month before Appomattox Courthouse. The historian's conclusion that contradictory interpretations of the Bible fundamentally affected the nature of the Civil War is, is now heard regularly from historians who have recently begun to explore the religious dimensions of this conflict that had been neglected for many generations. James McPherson, as an instance, has recently written that Civil War armies were arguably the most religious in American history. On several fronts, a growing number of historians are now pursuing research in response to a broad challenge that McPherson has posed. Religion was central, he wrote, religion was central to the meaning of the Civil War as the generation that experienced the war tried to understand it. Religion should also be central to our efforts to recover that meaning. Those who take up the challenge to measure the intensifying effects of religion on the outworking of the conflict do not hesitate in their conclusions. Harry Stout is not the only one who has suggested that in his phrase, with unbroken confidence in God's cause and no comment on the morality of man's conduct, the clergy North and South probably extended the duration of the war by a year bloodiest year, as it turned out. The fact that religion was so central during the war was a direct result of how important religion had become before the war. Both Northerners and Southerners, hardline abolitionists, along with hardline pro-slavery advocates, and the many who vacillated in between, almost all had looked for a word from God. Many had reached expressly for the written word of God to resolve their dilemmas about slavery. 
The depth of religious conviction helps explain how the Republican administration in the North could succeed in its unprecedented expansion of centralized government authority, first to save the Union and then to exterminate slavery. It explains as well how the classically Republican South, with its deep commitment to severely limited government, could allow the central Confederate state to become almost as vigorous as its northern counterpart. It was warfare that allowed deep-seated Republican scruples to be set aside, but this time it was warfare defined as work for the armies of the Lord. And so just a couple of words of conclusion. The enduring problem left for later American history by antebellum controversies and by the Civil War itself can be stated fairly simply, though, of course, there are immense complexities that follow. First, the Bible is much clearer in its position against racism than it is for its toleration of slavery. The Bible is clearer on the unity of humankind than what it has to say about slavery. Yet, in the run-up to the Civil War, public use of the Bible in the United States was directed overwhelmingly to the question of slavery and not to race. Then the Civil War, because of principles espoused by radical Republicans and then contingencies embraced by Abraham Lincoln, became a war to end slavery and not just to preserve the Union. But except for African Americans and a very few white Americans, the Civil War never became a conflict to end the systematic racial character of American society. Because public use of the Bible was so prevalent and public religious conviction so obviously drove the war efforts north and south, the cause of the nation became a religious matter of ultimate concern. As a result, the defense of the nation and the ending of slavery both fed the creation of millennial nationalism as the, pri as the primal religious faith. First, of course, there were two versions, north and south, but then after the end of the war, there was one version. As historian David Blight has shown, the millennial patriotism that accelerated the union of North and South had no energy left over to address festering problems of racial injustice. With the question of the nation and the question of slavery, both decisively settled, and with public use of religion now the servant of a revitalized national civil religion, the public use of the Bible was also absorbed into national civil religion. There remained, as a consequence, only a small and marginal interest, mostly expressed by African Americans, about what the Bible had to say about racism. The tangled legacy of the Civil War would define the interrelations of race, religion, and politics in the United States for more than a century after 1865. The argument that uh, people like Harry Stout are making, did anyone hear the question? How, how, what, what was the basis for my saying that uh, religion prolonged the war 
once the war was started, didn't it have its own momentum? Of course, yes, it did. The argument that people like Harry Stout are making, and he's made it in, uh, most visibly in, in the book Upon the Altar of the Nation, A Moral History of the Civil War, published last year, his argument is that had there not been um, uh, in the North a preponderance of opinion willing to go forward with the war, especially in the summer of 1864 and into the fall of 1864, and had not there been a preponderance, or more than a preponderance, of conviction in the South that the Lord was blessing this endeavor uh, after the fall of 1864 and into the spring of 1865, there would have been a popular sentiment for ending the war that would have pressured both the Northern government and the Southern government to come to some kind of terms much more rapidly than, than they did. This is, of course, speculation. It's uh, counterfactual uh, supposition. What it rests on, however, is some of this new research that has uh, been carried out recently on, um, for example, the uh, papers being sent to um, Confederate forces in the field, which by late 1864 and early 1864 was divided. There was, there was a, a more secular tone in some of the papers, but there was a more um, there was a more vigorous, more visceral uh, religious uh, language. Uh, several times, and I'm quoting here from a dissertation by Kurt Behrens that was finished at Oxford a few years ago. Several times, for example, the Old Testament story of Jericho was uh, brought out for the inspection of the southern troops. And the expectation would be that there might be a miraculous intervention of the Lord on behalf of his people, as the Lord had also intervened on behalf of his, his people in the age of uh, Joshua. The argument is that this type of, of a deeply rooted religious confidence um, gave a, 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 a long-stained power to what otherwise might have been a, a realization that this carnage, and of course it was terrible carnage, uh, we, we are worried, quite quite properly so, about what might be 100 deaths this month of American troops in Iraq, and of course 100 deaths by a, a, a simple action in the Civil War would have been a minor action, hardly worth recording. The supposition is that, that the carnage and the uh, futility of the war would have pressed itself upon more people with, with uh, predictable political effects. Thank you. Um, in elaborating the debate um, between the, the, the biblical debates, pro-slavery, anti-slavery, I guess what came to my mind is also the debate over Christianization and evangelization of the slaves, which is a, a perennial date on the debate on the um, you know the, the the Bible supporting slavery side, and I guess I just wondered. I was surprised not to hear more of that, and I just wondered what your sense is of the impact of those debates in the larger story that you're trying to tell. I mean, the the place of those debates over evangelization. What do we do when we Christianize the slaves right. and the vast numbers of conversions? What impact that has on this this account in this period? The um, the arguments that Marie is referring to were, were heard frequently from the 1770s and 80s, and, and they were forthcoming sometimes from people who actually opposed slavery, but the argument was that in the providence of God, uh, 
people were brought from Africa beyond the hearing of the gospel to a place in the United States, the West Indies, where even if conditions were terrible, they were able to hear the Christian gospel and, and be converted. What I've recently uh, discovered is that there is an African-American vein of writing, particularly after the war, that supports that, that uh, logic. Um, I don't actually, however, think that that reasoning had uh, a great deal of impact on the public life of the public, the, the public debate over the place of slavery in the nation. Um, where that debate, I think, becomes more important, and, and I actually have a paragraph that's cut out already of the second lecture on, on this matter, but where, where that debate was important uh, was among defenders of slavery, and then later on even among defenders of a race-stratified society who nonetheless felt that African Americans were human, fully human, and because of their full humanity needed to be redeemed, and could, in the province of God, be looked upon as fortunate to, be, to have fallen in the way of slavery. Now, strangely enough, that, that argument, which sounds to us extraordinarily dismissive and demeaning of the African-American population, was, in fact, a bulwark against scientific, polygenetic, eugenic theories about African-Americans and other non-whites that by the 1890s and the early uh, 20th century were persuading many people that you did not have to uh, worry about rights for African Americans or Chinese or Indians from the far east because they were not human. So the, 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 the providential arguments that saw slavery as a good because of the gospel coming to slavery are in fact present all along and sometimes from blacks, mostly from the south, some, some in the north, but there would have been uh, discriminating public figures. Lemuel Haynes is one, the black uh, congregational clergyman in the early 19th century in uh, New England, who, who affirmed that providential reading of history and was a very strong critic of the slave system in the United States. Have you thought about this? You probably have an answer. Is that, uh, What I think uh, your question points to, Marie, is how thoroughly most religious discussions and then many um, public discussions were framed in, in providential language. And, and it was the uh, belief, which I see is partly Calvinist, partly Enlightenment, the belief that the ordinary believer could ferret out the, 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 the wise the ways of God quite clearly that, that was uh, just standard. And, and when, when an individual, it might be Nathaniel Hawthorne or Emily Dickinson or Herman Melville or most famously Abraham Lincoln, d disagrees, they, they, these individuals just leap out at you because they, they, they say we don't understand providence. Uh, this follows up on that a little bit, but I was I was interested in you saying a little bit more about how the the folks in the 19th century who would want to resist the use of the Bible, either pro or con, who might you call the Civil War a fundamentally a religious war, 
and that, that can be ambiguous. Is, does that mean it's a theologically interesting war? Is, the, uh, is political activism a part of redemption history? Because I'm assuming that some of the uh, spirituality of the church arguments in the South said that uh, you know, Christians should rise above getting too worried in about these political right. entanglements, which you know is relevant for today. Because some critics of the religious right say, right. just get back to saving souls and don't you know worry about political entanglement engagement. Um, what percentage of folks made the argument that slavery as a secular issue is not part of redemption history, is not theologically interesting, and sort of who were they, and sort of what are your thoughts on? What, what role that strain within American evangelicalism or Calvinism yeah. played? Uh, there, a couple, couple of different questions, but let me, let me start right where we started. On, on the, the war as a religious war, the, our, my argument is not, I don't think people like Harry Stout are trying to argue that, that this, is, uh, this is a war where everybody was reading the Bible and marching to the battle with the Bible. Um, but but the, what is what historians have documented is that in comparative ideological terms evangelical religion is overwhelmingly the most important now and that's in a situation where the percentage of practicing evangelical Christians may be about the same as is today maybe up a little maybe down a little bit but but the the, 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 the comparative dimension there just is nothing like it the Catholic Church it mobilizes a lot of people but it's still very much a sub-political entity. Um, and and um, good, there's now some good recent scholarship as well as some older scholarship it has shown that, that uh, revival meetings uh, were as common in the Confederate Army in 1864 and 1865 as they'd been in northern cities in 1857 and 58. And there were a few of them in the north. Of course, you need more revivals if you're losing, so they are more in the... Your question about the spirituality of the church is, is, a, is a really tricky one. Uh, there was, as some of you will know, an argument by uh, mostly southern learned evangelicals that um, the business of the church was to attend to spiritual matters and that all questions like slavery or temperance or um, women's rights were perhaps good issues, but not as uh, issues to receive attention from the institutional church. So the church has a spiritual mission, and the spirituality of the church demands that churches not be involved with politics. That argument was strongest after the uh, rise of abolition, Christian abolitionism and then quasi-Christian abolitionism in the 1830s, when uh, Southern particularly leaders, and then some northern moderates could point to abolitionism as uh, illegitimately bringing into the religious domain political affairs. In my view, theologically, that's a good argument. Conservative Calvinists of several different sort can show why that is maybe a good theological position. As a historian, and practically speaking, it, it was a terrible argument. Because as soon as the cannon thundered against Fort Sumter, the spirituality of the church was the first casualty. There were no fatalities at Fort Sumter except the spirituality of the church. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, of, of uh, protege of James Henley Thornwell, who was in uh, New Orleans, 
preaches one of these just incredible sermon in April or May of 1861. And it's like you're standing there and whenever it was Pope Leo or Pope Urban. Deus volet. We're going to go on the crusade. We're going we're to do it to protect our system, to protect our government, to protect our people, to protect our way of life. It, it, so intensely political. Um, which, which then has led uh, people to conclude that when before the war, people like Benjamin Morgan Palmer protested against politicization in the North, they were hypocritically defending political situation with sub rosa theological arguments instead of manifest theological arguments. The result has been for theological considerations of spirituality of the church, what the same thing as the, the theoretical statements, some aspects of the slaves, slavery could teach some aspects of capitalism a lesson. Well, because in the United States set, setting, you never had slavery in the abstract. You always had blacks only slavery with the abuses to family, education, and religion that actually existed with slavery. There's been no point in, in, in going much further with well, what you might theoretically learn to improve capitalism from slavery. In the same way, there's been no point going further what you might do to improve public life with uh, a doctrine of the spirituality of the church because we know in American history the spirituality of the church was a smokescreen for a white racist regime. Now, actually, in theory, I don't think that's right, but in, in practice, that's, that's what's happened, and, and so it's made it very difficult to have a theoretical defense of the spirituality of the church. Uh, according to the spirituality of the church, no. The, the, what the Civil War amounted to would be a trial, and then uh, the, the churches would, would respond to their uh, uh, traumatized people with the balm of the gospel. Which, in fact, is what had happened with some very uh, noble Lutheran and Catholic priests, ministers, during the Thirty Years' War. Yes. Yes. About um, Nat Turner and David Walker and how you would put their strategies of interpretation and religious visions in relation to the reform literal hermeneutic yeah. you've been discussing. How I would uh, relate uh, David Walker and Nat Turner to what I've called the Reform Literal Interpretation of the Bible. I, d I don't think they practice that. They, they're, they're, as uh, a number of good books, Al Rabito's Be One, Theophilus Smith, um, some of the essays in the real fine Vincent Wimbush collection, the new book by uh, Callahan on, on blacks in the Bible. Um, Apart from people like Bishop Daniel Alexander Payne, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, black use of the Bible, I think, tend to be more emblematic, more uh, typological, um, just, just just as literal, I think, but 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 not not uh, built into that 18th century combination of Reformed and Enlightenment reading the Bible. Go so further with the question. you're suggesting that there was no possible common religious language. No, no. There was no possible common religious language? I don't, no, I don't think there was a, a common religious language from people who were, uh, and we, we know Turner and certainly David Walker and maybe uh, Denmark Vesey were all 
biblically informed people, uh, not necessarily biblically literate in a, in a technical, educated sense, but they were all biblical people, and and their part part of the uh, reaction in the slave holding states after 1831, Nat Turner, is is repulsion at how Turner and some of the people that supported him were putting the Bible to use. So these laws against teaching to read and regulating African-American education were, were laws deliberately aimed at keeping people away from the Bible because what was being made of the Bible was not only a different interpretation, but it was a whole way of, of dealing, of treating the scriptures that, that were, just didn't fly in the mainstream culture. I think uh, I, I've referenced the mind of the master class by Eugene Genovese and Elizabeth Fox Genovese, but I think the section on black religion in Eugene's, Genovese's role, Jordan role, was one of the first real strong um, accounts of this, what I would call a pretty deep African-American biblicism, but a biblicism moving in very different directions from that which dominated the, the uh, white communities. And I think white communities, too. It wasn't just the Protestants of evangelical sort. Thank you very much.